Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to the book of the Revelation and chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 7. I'm speaking this morning on this subject, three doors of destiny. Three doors of destiny. And we read about those three doors in Revelation chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 4. You begin reading with me, please, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. That's door number one. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. You're going to see the fulfillment of that prophecy real soon. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. He's talking there about the great tribulation. Of course, the Holy Spirit and the church, according to what I believe about the second coming of Christ and the way I interpret the book of the Revelation, the Holy Spirit and the church will have been removed and will not be here during the great tribulation. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Now move with me over to chapter 4 and verse 1. After these things I look, and behold a door standing open in heaven. That's door number 2. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet, speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Now go back to chapter 3 and verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's the third door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. The story goes that many years ago, Dr. Roland Q. Level, who was then serving as president of our New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, was overseas visiting in a foreign country. He heard that the king of that particular country was coming to the town in which he was visiting. So he began to inquire as to what a fellow had to do in order to see the king. He went down to the front desk in the hotel where he was staying. He inquired of the desk clerk. The desk clerk said, well, if you really want to see the king, you need to get up very early tomorrow morning. Get right out here in front of this hotel. Get right there on the curbside and get you a front row seat. So the next morning, Dr. Level got up before sunup, had a hearty breakfast, went right out there on that curbside and got him a ringside seat. He, he said the crowds began to gather and they waited for what seemed like forever. In fact, along about the middle of the day, Dr. Level said, I don't believe the king is ever going to come. And suddenly he looked down the road and saw a tulman and a processional moving right toward him. He said his heart began to beat fast with anticipation. His mouth got dry. His hands became moist. He said it kept moving toward him, a large black limousine with men all around it. And he said, suddenly, there he was. He was right in front of me. And he said, I've never been so disappointed in all of my life. I said, so that's the king. So what? Man, it's just a man riding in a black car, has hair on his head, two eyes, two ears, one nose, one mouth. 
Man, it was the most anticlimactic experience that he said he'd ever had. He said, I tried to figure it out. What spoiled it? What went wrong? Finally, he said, it came to me. That man was not my king. He didn't even know my name. Praise God, won't it be different? When the King of Kings comes, when our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls his sheep by our name, comes back literally, visibly, imminently, and gloriously the second time. Three different times, three different kinds of doors are mentioned in the book of the Revelation. Our thoughts this morning are centered on those three doors. And I want you to listen very carefully because each one of those three doors involves you. Our eternal destiny swings on the hinges of these three doors. You might want to jot them down as we go and just keep it for future reference or for future posterity. Door number one is what I call the door of greatness. We read about the door of greatness in Revelation chapter 3 verses 7 and 8. Look at those verses with me if you will. Our Lord is speaking to the church at Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love. He says, there are certain things about you that please me. Therefore, I'm going to set before you an open door. He says, I am the keeper of the keys. And when I open a door, no man can shut it. And when I shut it and lock it, no man can open it. So he looked at this church and said, I'm going to set before you an open door. Now, pastor, when I read that, I get all excited because I am convinced that God is saying that to any church today who will follow the example of the church at Philadelphia. And I believe God is saying that to the Luke 4.18 fellowship. God is also saying to us there are certain principles that if you will abide by, I'm going to set before you an open door, and you can go through that door by faith in obedience to me and enter into the door of greatness. You say, well, now, wait a minute, Brother Lynn, time out. Is it a sin to want to be great? Is it a sin to want to do big things? Is it a sin to want to achieve? Is that just simply a whelm of the flesh? No, my friend. God wants us to go through by faith these vast open doors that he sets before us for his glory to bring honor and praise to him. Our Lord doesn't want us to be defeated. Our Lord does not want us to be failing. Our Lord wants us to be succeeding on every hand. You say, well, I thought it was wrong to want to be great. Jeremiah 45, 5 says, desire great things for thyself, flee them not. Jesus said, whosoever would be great among you, let him first become a minister. But the Lord Jesus was not saying don't be great. He was saying make sure that it is true greatness that you really desire. He said, whosoever among you wants to be great, let me tell him how to be great. Be great in love. Be great in service. Be great in faithfulness. Be great in soul winning. Our Lord says, I'm going to set before this church an open door. Listen to me, my friend. If this church is willing to be a ministering church, if this church is willing to be a soul winning church, which is almost unheard of in our day and time, if this church is willing to be a ministering church, and I'm convinced you are, and you're already doing that, but if you desire for that in an even greater way, God is going to open for you unbelievable doors. God is going to do such things through this church that when people just hear about it, their very ears will tingle. That is, if we're willing to let God himself 
open the doors. And we're willing to walk through those doors in faith and in obedience. You say, well, Brother Lynn, why does God open doors for some and not for others? What is the secret of greatness? What is the secret of being a church with an open door? What is the secret of having the Lord Jesus Christ himself to open doors for us all along life's journey? Well, he tells us right here in the scripture. I want you to look carefully and closely with me at verse 8. There he gives us God's recipe for the open door. I want to call to your attention several things that are mentioned in verse 8. First of all, I want you to notice that he says to them, you have a little strength. Now, please get this down plain, big, and straight. God didn't open a door for them because of their finances. God didn't open a door for them because of their ability. God didn't open a door for them because of their education. In fact, according to this scripture, they didn't have much of that. They were weak people in all of these realms. You see, when it comes to the kingdom of God and service to our Lord, when it comes to being used and blessed of God to expand the kingdom, to enrich and to enhance the kingdom for his glory, his honor, and his praise, it's not fame, but it's faith that counts. It's not ability, but it's availability and dependability. It's not scholarship, but it's relationship. Because everything God does in our life grows out of our intimate relationship and fellowship with Him. God uses common, ordinary people. People that don't have much strength as this world sees it, but because they're totally committed to Him, He does extraordinary things through them. Now, in verse 8, he gives us three reasons that he set before them an open door. I want you to follow it with me in your Bible. The first reason he opened the door for them was because they were saturated with the Word of God. Saturated with the Word of God. He says, for you have kept my Word. Any church today that will take its stand on the Word of God, any individual who will take this Bible and love it, read it, devour it, and pour over it, any person who will take the Word of God into their heart, into their lives, and practice it, is going to have success. The reason we're not having more success in our individual lives and in the church today, the reason we're not making a greater impact on the world is because we've left the Word of God out of our lives. There's enough dust on some Bibles that you could write the word damnation with your fingertip. These hath God married, and no man shall depart. Dust on the Bible and drought in the heart. You want to know why God opened the door for these seemingly little insignificant people in the church at Philadelphia? Because they were a Bible-believing, Bible-practicing people of the Word of God. Now the question arises, how much time are you and I spending in God's Word? How much time do you and I spend in pouring over the Word of God. Sad to say, many of us probably don't even pick up our Bible except when we come to church on Sunday and follow Brother Fred when he's preaching through the Bible. Listen to me. We have a golden opportunity, and we live in a day and time in which people can do basically anything they want to do, and we need to get into the Word and get the Word of God way down deep inside of us. These beloved saintly Christians at Philadelphia, they believed it, they loved it, they read it, they shared it, they poured over it like hot lava. So he set before them an open door because they were saturated with the Word of God. But not only that, they were dedicated to the Son of God. You'll notice again in verse 8, he says, you have not 
denied my name. You show me a church that believes the Bible and loves the Lord Jesus Christ and seeks to uplift, magnify, exalt, and proclaim Him and praise God, I'll show you a church that has an open door. I'll show you a church that all the forces of wickedness and hell cannot stop because when God opens a door, no man or anything that man does can shut it in any way. We've had certain groups coming along here in these last days calling themselves a Jesus movement. I believe most of them are sincere. I believe God's using and blessing many of them. But listen, you talk about stolen thunder, that groups could come along in the last days and call themselves a Jesus movement. A church ought to be a Jesus movement, praise God. We ought to be so wrapped up in Jesus Christ that when people think of our churches, they think immediately of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. It makes me wonder where we've been. Any church that is not a Jesus movement is not a church. And any Jesus movement that is not church-centered is not a Jesus movement. Jesus moves through the church. The Bible says unto him, be glory forever in the church. Why did the Lord Jesus open a door for this church? Because they were a Jesus church. They loved Jesus. They believed Jesus. They preached Jesus. They sang Jesus. They exalted Jesus. After all, it was Jesus who said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Not some ministry, not some man, not an organization, not a church, not a denomination. But he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. So he set before them an open door because they were saturated with the word of God. They were dedicated to the Son of God. But not only that, if you look again at verse 8, they were activated by the Spirit of God. We know they were activated by the Spirit of God because he said, I know your works. Unbelievable, unexplainable things can be done through believing the Bible and knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I want for my life and my church. That's what I want for the church of which I'm a member back home. That's what I want for every church where God sends me to preach. That's what I want for your church. I mean that unbelievable, unexplainable things can happen because God is doing it all. And when the dust settles and the smoke clears, the only explanation you can give is God showed up. God did that. To God be all the glory and all the praise. On the day of Pentecost, the people who were watching it from a distance said, what does all this mean? It wasn't long before that same crowd was saying, what do we have to do in order to get in on it? Wouldn't it be great if all the people in Mobile, Alabama said, we've never seen anything like this before. We want to get in on it. Here's a church with an open door, and we don't want to miss God. We want to be a part of what God is doing. Now, the same principle that holds true for the church also holds true for the individual. You see, you too, my friend, as a believer in Christ, you're destined for greatness But most of us will miss it. You know why we'll miss it? Because we don't think God could really use us or do anything in us. Well, Brother Lynn, I'm just a common, ordinary person. Nothing great ever happens to me. Russell Caldwell gave one speech over 6,000 times. It was called Acres of Diamonds. In essence, it was a story about a man that owns a large, beautiful farm in Africa. But he got the itch to go off and search for diamonds... So he sold the large, beautiful farm, took off around the world looking for diamonds, spent his entire life searching for diamonds that he never found. And finally, at the end of his life, being totally disillusioned, he threw himself into the Thames River and committed suicide. Less than three days later, the man who bought that large, beautiful farm from him 
in Africa, was walking through his farm, and he went to cross a stream, and there was a beautiful shiny stone down under the water. He picked it up and examined it, and it was a huge diamond. Research showed that his farm was filled with acres of diamonds. Here was a man who sold a farm loaded with diamonds to go off around the world searching for diamonds that he never found. I wonder if right now, my friend, you're sitting on acres of diamonds. You're saying, I wish I was here. I wish I was there. I'm just a nobody. Nothing great ever happens to me. Man, there's no way anything like that could ever occur in my life. God said to this little nobody church, you have little strength, but that doesn't matter to me. I have acres of diamonds for you. I'm going to set an open door before you. It would astound you, astonish you, amaze you today to know what God could do in you, for you, by you, through you if you just tapped on his resource and stopped trying to do it yourself. But just let God settle down in your heart and let God be God and let God make himself at home in your life. Jesus said to his disciples, greater works than these that you've seen me do shall you do because I go to my father and you believe in me. We've gone around long enough living beneath our privileges as a child of God. Gone around living like we have a pauper God and we're spiritual paupers begging to just get by every day in our life. God never intended for us to live weak, simmering lives. The book of Daniel says the people who know their God shall do great exploits. So there is the door of greatness in Revelation 3, 7, and 8. But now move with me over to chapter 4 and verse 1. And I want you to see not only the door of greatness, but I want you to see the door to glory. I am convinced that in this verse we have a preview of the rapture. I'm convinced this verse is speaking about the rapture of the church. There is the apostle John on the Isle of Patmos in seclusion, caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day. And suddenly a voice opened from heaven and said, come on up here, John. I have something to show you. As part of your vision, I want to show you the things that are to come. I want you to see all the things I've prepared for you and for all of my children. You tell people today you believe in the rapture and the second coming of Christ, and they'll look at you as though you're weird and fanatical. Well, all I can tell you is the New Testament says 318 times that Jesus Christ is coming back. And the Greek word used for it is parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. It means advent and appearance. And every time that it is mentioned in the New Testament, it is a direct reference to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ and his second return to earth. There's a lot of people not paying much attention to God now. We're hearing from every other kind of source except God. And we've got people seem to be in control. They don't have time for God. They don't pay attention to God. They're anti-God. They leave God out of everything. But I'm here today to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, we're not ruled or dominated or have to take as the last word what we see and hear and what men say. I'm here to tell you that God says, the Word of God says, the King is coming and He's coming real soon. And you and I need to be prepared and we need to help as many people as possible to be prepared. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 says, The archangel of God shall shout, and the trumpet of God shall sound, and the dead in Christ will rise first. When Jesus comes back the first time, and that archangel of God shouts, and that trumpet sounds, the graves of believers who've died in Christ are going to burst open. When they were buried in that grave, only their body went to sleep. 
Their soul and their spirit departed to be with the Lord Jesus in paradise. When he returns, their soul and their spirit will return with him. Their grave is going to burst open. They're going to have a new resurrected, glorified body just like that of the Lord Jesus Christ, united with him and their soul and their spirit in the air. And then the rapture of the church is going to take place because the Bible says those of us who are alive and remain on planet earth, we're going to be called up taken out, we're going to be with them, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now the word rapture itself is never mentioned in the Bible, but it means to be taken up. It means to be called up and taken out. And that is exactly what the Bible describes. And when we're called up and taken out, the Holy Spirit and the church of the living God, the New Testament church, is going to be removed. We're going to go with him to heaven. And there we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, where we'll be judged not for our sins. Jesus has already taken care of that on the cross, and that was removed and taken from us when we were saved and washed in the blood of the Lamb. But there we're going to stand before the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to be judged according to our works, what we did with Christ after we received Him. And if our works were done in the power and energy of the flesh, there'll be wood, hay, and stubble and be burned up. But if we did it for His glory, if we did it to help advance the kingdom, if we were yielded to Him and He did it in and through us, our works will be gold, silver, and precious stones. And there our degree of reward over in the heaven is going to be determined. And there we're also going to receive our clothing for the marriage supper of the Lamb, which I'm convinced we will partake of with the Lord Jesus Christ back on earth in Jerusalem during his millennium, millennial 1,000 year reign here upon earth. Now, while that's going on for seven years, back here on earth, the great tribulation is going to begin. And you can read all about that in Revelation chapter 13. The Bible says that a man is going to rise up out of the land. That is, he's going to be a Jew. He will have to be a Jew in order to influence the Jews and to deceive them. That will be the false prophet. He will be the one who comes to prepare the way and proclaim the coming of the Antichrist. It is a mockery of the ministry of John the Baptist, who was a herald of the first coming of Jesus Christ. And the false prophet will begin to prepare the way for the coming of the Antichrist. Anyone who opposes the false prophet, speaks out against him, or comes against him in any way, will be persecuted and will lose their life. But he'll begin to proclaim about the real what he considers to be the real coming Messiah, which will be the Antichrist. The Bible says the Antichrist will rise up out of the sea. That means he will not come from the land of Israel. He will come from a Gentile nation. However, I am convinced he will be a Jew. He may be a Russian Jew, a Roman Jew, a Greek Jew, or whatever, but nevertheless, he will come from one of those other nations. When the Antichrist comes on the scene, and by the way, I'm convinced he is alive now, but he's not yet come to the forefront. And when he does, I'm convinced he'll be seen through the means of mass communication, worldwide television, worldwide computers controlled by the false prophet and by the Antichrist. And when he first shows up on the scene, he will appear to be a good guy. He will appear to be a champion of the people. And he will talk about health, wealth, peace, and success. He will spend all of his energy trying to broker a peace treaty with Israel. Not all of the Jews will be deceived and believe that he's God, but many of them will be. And man, when he talks about the peace 
and the peace could come to Jerusalem, they'll be totally deceived under a spirit of deception placed on them by the enemy because they've longed for that peace for so long. Not all of them, but many of them will be. And he will begin to broker that peace treaty, and eventually he will sign a peace treaty with Israel. When that happens... Man, they'll begin to laud him and praise him that he is the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the one for which they have been looking. And those first three and a half years of the tribulation will be years of peace. But right in the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to be healed. He's going to experience a miraculous healing from a head wound. And he'll be resuscitated. I will not say resurrected because it's a mockery of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he'll be resuscitated and experience a miraculous healing from a head wound. And when that happens, he'll move into a temporary temple constructed on a temporary site in Jerusalem. He'll seat himself on the throne in that temple and proclaim himself to be God. And this is called in the Bible, the abomination of desolation or the day of Jacob's trouble. He will also see that those who are following him will have to receive the mark of the beast 666, which is the number of man, it will be placed on their forehead or on their hand. I'm convinced that will be some type of special biochip that will go just under the skin that can only be detected by the computers used by the Antichrist and by all of his forces. And those who do not receive the mark of the beast will not be able to buy or sell or live normal lives during that time. This is when those Jews who are not deceived by him began to disperse from Jerusalem and disperse all over Israel. They go into hiding. They go back down to Petra and to Masada and up into the mountains in order to hide for their very lives. It is during this time that according to Revelation chapter 11, two great witnesses are going to be raised up by God. I interpret that to be Moses and Elijah, they're going to take the gospel to the Jewish people. And at least 12,000 Jews out of each of the original 12 tribes, totaling 144,000 Jews, will be saved. They will receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. And then Revelation 11 says those two great witnesses will be killed and their blood spilled in the street. And afterwards, God's going to miraculously raise them from the dead. And they're going to heaven to be with him, and the 144,000 Jews are going to become the evangelists who take the gospel to the lost people during the great tribulation. You see, even though the Holy Spirit of the church will have been removed, people can be saved during the tribulation, but it will only be those who have not rejected Christ before the rapture. According to 2 Thessalonians 2.2, those who rejected Christ before the rapture, God gave them over to grand delusion. They cannot be saved. And the people who will be saved during the tribulation are either those who've never heard, those who've never rejected Christ, or those who've never had a chance to really be saved. It'll be like 144,000 Billy Grahams carrying the message of salvation in Jesus Christ to the far corners of the earth. It is during this time that the Antichrist is going to try to marshal all of the forces of the world that are anti-Christ, anti-God, and against Israel to come together to destroy Israel. Russia, the great golden bear from the north, will come down. You can take a map when you get home today, draw you a circle right in the middle of Moscow, take an arrow and keep drawing with that arrow due south, and eventually you'll wind up right in the heart of Jerusalem. What all the enemies of God and of Christ and of Israel want today 
is Jerusalem. That's what they're all after. That's the whole problem with the deal in Gaza. Israel won that land in the Six-Day War in 1967, gave it to those people. Those people are not satisfied just with that land. Those people want Jerusalem. They don't want just to go over into Israel. They want Jerusalem. And they want peace without really paying the price for peace. That's not their land. That land belongs to, belongs to the children of Israel. It belongs to the people of God. It was promised to them by God, and God has never withdrawn that promise. It is their land. Not only Russia, but Red China with her million-man army, all of the uh, Arab nations, all of the Islamic nations, the Islamists are out to control the world, they use two extremes to do it, either through religious extremists or through terrorism. And their Koran tells them that their degree of reward in heaven will be determined by how many Jews and how many Christians they're able to kill. People are all worried about Iran unleashing its nuclear weapons on Israel. That will not happen till the last three and a half years of the tribulation, and they'll try to do that at the battle of Arma. And man, during the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the earth will be covered with heat. There will be no rainfall. No longer will the snow come down off of the mountains and flow into the streams and the rivers and into the oceans. The Euphrates River will run dry. This will enable all of these nations to converge on Israel and head toward a place called the Valley of Megiddo. I've been privileged to go to the Valley of Megiddo on three separate occasions. It is supposedly the richest, most fertile plot of land in all of the world. Napoleon called it the greatest natural battlefield that he had ever seen. The crops were so fertile and rich and tall that Napoleon took his entire French army down through the valley of Megiddo and they were totally undetected. People could not see it. And there the battle of Armageddon is going to take place. And all of these nations and armies and forces that have been put together by the Antichrist, they're going to come there. And that is when Jesus will come back the second time from heaven on a white horse. We will come with him. We will view and witness this from the air. He'll have a sword in his mouth. And there he'll slay all of the enemies of God, all of the enemies of Christ, and all of the enemies of Israel. It is then that the Lord Jesus will move into the correctly structured temple on the original temple site in Jerusalem, seat himself on the throne there, and reign for 1,000 years. And when that happens, Satan will be bound in chains and cast into the abyss, into the bottomless pit. He'll be loosed after the 1,000 years and able to move about to and fro temporarily. He'll try to start another world war between God and Magog. But there will not be enough forces for him to marshal and to bring together. Then... The great white throne judgment is going to occur. And at the great white throne judgment is where people will answer for their sins and why they rejected Jesus Christ. Every person who ever rejected Christ before the rapture will stand there along with Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist. They will be judged and then they will be cast into the lake of fire, eternal torment to forever be separated from God. It is then that the earth, as you and I know it, will be consumed by fire. And it is then that the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem will come and will not only reign with Jesus Christ for a thousand years, praise God, will reign with Jesus Christ forever and forever. And that is the reason we need to reach as many people with the gospel today as we possibly can. 
Because we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And my friend, that means he could come back at any moment. That means that archangel of God should shout and the trumpet of God sound while I'm standing here preaching to you about it at this very moment. You say, well, preacher, how close do you think we are to it? Brother Fred knows I believed all of my ministry, that I'll never die a physical death. I'm convinced he'll come back in my lifetime. I believe that 49 years ago when I started preaching. I believe it more so today, that he's going to come back real soon. I don't have any idea when it is, but I'll tell you this. I'm convinced we're closer to it now than we were over 2,000 years ago when Jesus said in John 14, 3, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, then shall I come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I'm excited about it. You ought to be excited about it. You ought not to be afraid of it, especially if you're saved. If you're not saved, get saved, and you won't be afraid of it. I do not expect to die, I may, but I expect to be raptured. Now, if I'm wrong, that's okay with me. I don't mind taking a detour through a graveyard to get to heaven, but I don't believe that's going to happen in my life. I'm convinced he's going to come. The Bible gives 11 major signs of his return. All 11 have occurred. They are in place. Praise God. We're no longer looking for a sign. We're listening for a shout. We're no longer looking for a cleavage in the ground called a grave. We're looking for a cleft in the sky called glory. Praise God. He could come at any moment. And God convicted me several years ago. I need to be sounding forth this trumpet. And I need to be preaching this all over America. And wherever God sends me to go. I've been thinking a lot about the signs of the time lately. History is divided into seven dispensations. And the seventh one is the church age, the day of grace. We're in that right now. And I believe God's ready to write in bold letters across the horizon. The time is at hand. Make ready. I believe in the conversion and intensification of the signs. And I for one believe he's coming and I'm glad he's my king. I'm glad he knows my name. And I'm glad he's given me an opportunity to help as many people as possible to come to Christ and get saved and be ready for it. Now go to Revelation 3.20 very quickly. Let me just mention the third door. The first one was the door of greatness. The second one was the door to glory. This is the door of grace in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. The Lord Jesus opens the first doors, but only you and I can open the third door because it's the door to our heart. The Holy Spirit deals with us gently and in compassion. He doesn't gate crash, force, burst, or pressure his way into anyone's heart. He only comes where he's wanted and where he's welcome. And there's only one person that can extend that invitation to him to do that, and that's you. He would not have it any other way. Now take your Bible and follow this with me very quickly in Revelation 3.20. The Bible pictures him there standing. Behold, I stand at the door. Some of us have left him there in the snow, the rain, the heat, the gloom, and the chilling morning. Revelation 3.20 not only pictures him standing, but it pictures him knocking. He's been knocking at some of our heart's door. He's knocking at your heart's door right now. He knocks in all sorts of ways. He knocks through accidents. He knocks through sickness. He knocks through people's door, on people's door when they're overseas. He did it with men when they were in wartime, defending our country and paying the price, going into harm's way so I could stand here and preach today. He knocks through sermons. He knocks through songs. He knocks through music. He knocks through film. He knocks through conversation. But the Bible not only pictures him standing there and knocking, it pictures him speaking. If anyone hears my voice right now, the still small voice of God is speaking to people in this service. You're not here and listening by accident. 
God is speaking to you right now. That's not egotism. I know that when I stand up and preach Jesus and I preach the Bible, God is speaking through me. If I didn't know that, I didn't believe that, I wouldn't waste God's time. I wouldn't waste your time. And I wouldn't waste my time. He speaks through his mouthpiece. He speaks through music. He speaks through sorrow. He speaks through sickness. He speaks through circumstances. He speaks through a service. He speaks through a neighbor. He speaks through the Holy Spirit. He speaks in a thousand different ways saying, I love you. And I'm standing at your heart's door, knocking and speaking. If you will open the door, because I want to come into your life, I'll come in and give you a life worth living. And ladies and gentlemen, if that door has not been opened, It's because you and I have said that someone else or something else means more to us than Jesus Christ. And we've literally shut the door in his face. Because you'll notice there in Revelation 3.20, he says, if you'll open the door, I'll come in. That's what being a Christian is. Being a Christian is not just believing a set of rules. It's not accepting a creed or a denomination. It's not just attending a church. It's not just joining a church. It's not just being religious. Listen, I'm not preaching about religion. I've never been more convinced than I am at this very moment that religion is the curse of the world. I don't know anything the devil's using more than religion to keep people away from Jesus Christ. Because you can be religious and be lost. You can be religious and not be spiritual. You can be religious and not even know God. But just follow religion. Religion is man's search for God. It's man's attempt to reach up to God. Christianity as taught by Jesus Christ in the Bible is God reaching down to man and God doing for us what we're incapable of doing for ourselves. It's Jesus Christ coming to live in our life. It's knowing Him in a personal way. It's letting Him through His Holy Spirit come to live in us because we choose to invite Him to do so. And friend, it's a deliberate act. People know they must do it, and they do it deliberately. They choose to do it. It's a definite act. People know for sure when they do it. And if you hear that, you don't know for sure that you're saved. In all likelihood, you need to get saved. Because if you've ever really been saved, you don't need Brother Fred or me or Brother Ed or anybody else to tell you. You know that you're saved. And if you don't know that for sure, let me encourage you to make sure that you know for sure this very day. And praise God, it's a delightful act. You just notice what he said in Revelation 3.20. He said, I'll come in and dine with you, and you can dine with me. That means we'll have dinner together. He's not coming in cracking a whip everywhere he can. He says, man, when I come in, we're going to have a good time. We treat him like a divine guest. He said, I'll dine with you, and you'll dine with me. He'll set the table for you. And, friend, he sets a great table, praise God. I've never known anybody that really and truly got saved. That ever came back to me and said, Brother Lynn, it's the worst mistake I ever made. I wish I'd never come to know God. I wish I'd never opened the door to my heart and invited Jesus Christ to come in. And I've also, in all these years of preaching, never had a single person to say to me, Brother Lynn, I want to tell you how much the dear sweet old devil means to me. He's been so good to me. And he's blessed me so much. And I'm convinced I'll go to heaven. Batting a thousand. Reader's Digest said, everybody needs three things in order to get through life. Someone to love, something to do, and something to hope for. Praise God, Jesus Christ is all three and a whole lot more. And he's ready today if you and I are ready. I'll tell you this story, and I'm finished. Brother Fred mentioned to you that I pastored the First Baptist Church of Merritt Island, Florida, from 1979 to 1987. God used him and Adrian Rogers and some other people to get me there. I tell you, it was one of the greatest times of my life. God was blessing our church in a very, very unusual way. A man started attending our church named Mr. Margolis. Mr. Margolis was an incomplete Jew. He never received Jesus as his personal Messiah. 
And the way he got to our church was he saw me preaching on television, and evidently I was really bearing down with the gospel. And he said he became so angry that he took a large piece of chocolate cake and threw it at me. Now, I never knew that he threw the chocolate cake, but he said it left a blob on his TV screen, and he never could get that blob off. So he said, I'm going down to that church and check that preacher out and find out if he's for real. Now, long before I knew who he was, I saw Mr. Margolis. He started out way up in the balcony of the old church at Merritt Island. And for six solid weeks, he kept getting closer every service. Now, he never filled out a visitor's card. He would never tell anybody his name. He'd get out before we could get to him. During the welcome time, I'd try to reach him, and he'd go to the restroom or something just to avoid me. And I never did find out his name. Well, one day, I'm working in my office, and my secretary buzzes me on the intercom, and she said, Brother Lynn, she said, there's a man named Mr. Margolis who's been attending our church for about three and a half months. And she said, uh, He's in the Wustoff Hospital, and he's having critical surgery tomorrow. And he wanted to know if you'd come over there and talk to him about inviting Jesus to come into his heart. And I said, no, I'm real busy right now. I've got a lot going. He knows where I am and knows what I believe. And man, if he wants to be saved, he can come over here, and I'll tell him. Otherwise, he can die and go to hell. Do you think that's what I said? Well, you ought to see the look on your face right now. I believe I could sell you anything if I wanted to right now. No, I dropped everything I was doing. I said, you tell him I'll be there as soon as it takes me to drive my car. Went out, jumped in the car, went across the Indian River, the Hubert Humphrey Bridge. Man, turned left down through Cocoa, Florida, came down in front of Rockledge to the hospital. I was so excited, Brother Fred, I got out and reminded me of you. I left the door wide open, left the car running. And the security guard said, preacher, why don't you turn that car off and go over there and park it? I said, no, you, you, you park it. Keep the keys. There's a man wanting to get saved on the third floor. I'm headed that way. And I learned this from Brother Fred. I don't believe he's been doing it much lately, but when I was young and I was a pastor and I visited the hospitals, man, I'd go up and down the steps. That's the only exercise I got, and I learned it from him. Anything negative in my life, I learned it from him. (laughs) No, that was a positive. But anyway, I ran up three flights of stairs, turned the corner, and when I got through the door and in the hallway, went down the hall, turned into Mr. Margolis' room, and when I saw him for the first time, I said, so that's who that is. That's that man's name. But you'll never guess who was in the room with Mr. Margolis when I went in there. It was the Jewish rabbi. And in case you're having trouble following me, to put an Orthodox Jewish rabbi and a conservative evangelical Southern Baptist preacher in the same room at the same time is not the world's greatest combination. Brother Brother Ed, that's about like a piano at a Church of Christ convention. That's about what that's like. (laughs) The rabbi became indignant that I was there. He got between Mr. Margolis and me. I couldn't get over to Mr. Margolis' bed. And he got right up in my face and was determined he was going to take his finger and poke it in my chest. I mean, he was almost nose to nose. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm being transparent here. I don't like for anybody to get nose to nose with me when they talk to me except Pansy. And I only like Pansy to at certain times. <laughs> and the rabbi sat right and he said, you're not talking to this man today. He said, I don't believe a single thing you Baptists have to say. And I hate you. I said, well, Rabbi, the devil does too, but what's your argument? He said, you think you're the only ones going to heaven? I said, Rabbi, you better brace yourself and get ready. I'm worse than that. He said, what do you mean? I said, I don't believe half the Baptists are going. (laughs) He said, what do you mean? I said, I don't believe anybody's going to heaven because they're Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, Jew, Catholic, whatever. You're not going to heaven unless you've done what the Bible says. You've personally received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. So if you've got an argument, Rabbi, you're going to have to come up with one better than that. He said, well, I don't want you over here proselyting this man. 
I just stepped back. I said, Mr. Margolis, I just now realized who you are. How long have you been coming to our church? He said, off and on for three months. But the last six months, I hadn't missed a service. I said, I know. I've been seeing you. I said, Mr. Margolis, just for the record, why'd you start coming to our church? Did anybody stand over you and point a gun at your head and make you an offer you couldn't refuse? He said, no, sir. And he told me about the chocolate cake episode. I said, Mr. Margolis, one more thing, and I'm finished. Why am I here today? He said, because I sent for you. I want to talk to you, and I need to talk to you. I stepped back. I said, Rabbi, I let my case rest. I said, Mr. McGoes, you have company, sir. I said, let me come back later. He said, hold it, Brother Lynn, hold it. He said, I sent for you. I didn't send for him. He said, if anybody's going to leave, you let him leave. <laughs> well, I liked that. I really did. But I said, well, I think you better break it to him, Mr. Margolis. I don't think he'd take it well coming from me. So Mr. Margolis asked him to leave. And the rabbi said, this is not the end of this. I said, I know, Rabbi. Hope I get another chance to witness to you. I really do. But he left. <laughs> I went over and sat down by Mr. Margolis' bed, and he was 83 years old. And an old bony hand came out from under the cover. And he said, Brother Lynn, I've been listening to you preach, and I came to the church to tear you down and be critical and find something negative, and I never could find it because unusual things started going on inside of me every time you'd preach. And he said, Preacher, I ask you to come here today because I want you to tell me how your Jesus can become my Jesus. I said, Mr. Margolis, I think I can do that. I led him to receive Christ. He said, Preacher, I'm having surgery tomorrow. He said, I can't come to church for five weeks. But he said, the first time I could be there, I promise you I'll come and make public my profession of faith. And I want you to baptize me that same night. I've watched you baptize people, and I want you to baptize me. I said, Mr. Margolis, it's done. You can count on it. Blackie Shepherd, my head usher at Merritt Island, told me, and for the next nine months, every time they came to open the doors and unlock them so people could get in for church, Mr. Margolis was sitting on the steps. He didn't have any living relatives. He didn't have any family. He had nobody, just himself. So he just started going through his neighborhood door to door and wound up bringing his neighbors to church, and 14 of them got saved over the next nine months. I'll never forget the night I baptized Mr. Margolis at Merritt Island. We put white robes on him. He was bald as a cue ball, had great big ears. I can see him now coming down those steps into the pool. For me to baptize him. He looked like a yellow cab coming down the street with the doors wide open. That's the way it looked. He got over there and I got ready to baptize him. And always when I'd baptize people, I'd say, Bared in the likeness of Christ and raised to walk to a newness of life. Well, I got Mr. Margolis down. I said, Bared in the likeness of Christ. And then something happened never happened to me, but I'd heard the old preachers talk about it. He came up out of the water shouting and praising the Lord. And man, when he did, I'll never forget this. He said, Glory to God, Brother Lynn, put me down again. I said, No, 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 Mr. Margolis. I said, you only have to be baptized one time. Jesus died one death, rose from the dead one time. Man, you only have to be baptized once. Well, he was so excited, he reached up and put his arms around my neck, brother friend. He said, bless God, let's baptize you. And he started trying to pull me under the water. And I said, no, 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 Mr. Margolis. I said, I've already been baptized too. And I said, besides, you'll mess up my hair. I've got to go down there and preach in a few minutes. <laughs> I haven't seen Mr. Margolis since the day we buried him, but I'll never forget Mr. Wiley Baxley. Called me from the Baxley Funeral Home on Merritt Island one day. Said, Brother Lynn, did you know that Mr. Margolis had a terminal illness? I said, no, sir, I didn't know that. He said he sure did. He said he passed away last night, but he had already come by here and made all these funeral arrangements and paid for everything. But he said, I'm sitting in my conference room, and I have his banker, his lawyer, and his financial broker, and we can't make another move because there's an envelope here made out to you until you come and read the contents of that envelope. That's the instructions. I said, I'll be right there. I walked into that conference room. They were like vultures. You could just see they were, all knew they were going to get something. I opened it up and I started reading it. This is what it said. Dear Brother Lynn, I heard you say at Merritt Island one night 
that a man's works don't get him to heaven, but his works follow him to heaven. And I also heard you preach to us, Pastor, and tell us we ought to sow seed. It's going to outlive us. He said, I won't be around when you complete the new building and you go into the new building. By the way, the Lord's blessed you. It's obvious he led you and blessed you with this building. Praise the Lord. But he said, I won't be here when you go into the new building. So he said, I just want you to know that I am willing. My home, my car, my bank account, my savings account, and all of my investments to the building program of the First Baptist Church of Merritt Island, Florida. And it was a substantial amount of money. I wish you could have seen all those guys. The air just went right out of them. Somebody answered the phone. Tell them I can't come right now, but I'll be there when I finish preaching. <laughs> and that doesn't bother me. One night I was preaching away, Brother Fred, and the phone started ringing. And I said that. Nobody answered it. It kept on ringing. I said, go ahead and answer the phone. It's all right. It doesn't bother me. I understand. Those things can happen. It kept on ringing. Finally, I realized it was my phone in my pocket. <laughs> I never take my phone inside of church, but I did that night. I didn't turn it off. Let me tell you something about Mr. Margolis. That was 1983, 31 years ago. But since the day God called me to preach, since the day he started giving me opportunities, I tell you why I love those stories. Because I've never lost the wonder of it all. I've never lost the thrill of seeing people come to Christ. I've never lost the thrill of seeing people get right with God. As a young man, God gave me the gift of evangelism. Brother Fred taught me how to pastor a church. I thought I'd be a pastor till my dying days. But that's not what God meant for me to be. Sometimes I lead a vagabond life. Sometimes it gets real lonely out there on the road by yourself. No family, nobody with you. I'm not trying to get you to feel sorry for me. I'm just telling you, being honest with you, it gets lonely. But if I didn't know that God didn't have me out there to take the gospel to as many people as possible, I couldn't do it. And to have people to come up to you and say, you preached at our church. I was saved when you preached. I came to know Christ. I wouldn't trade that. I wouldn't take a million dollars for that. Because that's what life is really all about. There are probably some Mr. Margolis in this room today. And you need to come to Jesus. Some of you need to come home. You know what God wants to do in your life. You don't have to have me or the pastor to tell you you know. And now's the golden opportunity. This is the hour of decision. Christ or the world, you must choose.